If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight. Uh, I've been looking forward to this one and I hope that you have if you've been studying and reading ahead. I really think we're going to have a good conversation tonight. Uh, 1 Corinthians opens up with an appeal and a call for unity, which we spent our time together last week talking about having a deep dive into chapter one about uh, Paul appeals that we realize we are members of the body of Christ. And that's going to become a big theme throughout or become an even bigger theme as we get into the later chapters in 1 Corinthians. He calls that we would see uh, that every decision we make impacts those around us. And that as we seek to be united with our brother and sister in Christ, we are ultimately uh, building up the body of Christ and, and glorifying God e- even more. Paul calls us to live by the way of the cross. So if you wonder how can we be united, how can the body of Christ be united when we're so different and there's so much that's going around that, that often is, you know, that often works against us and divides us, how can we be united as the people of God? Paul says it's simple. And it may not seem simple to us. It may not feel simple or easy to us, but Paul says it's simple. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of selflessness. It's the way of humility. It's the way that may be against the nature of the world, uh, but it is what adheres to the life that Jesus lived and the way that he died and the purpose for which he came uh, to raise us all up to a new and better life. So throughout 1 Corinthians, we're gonna hear him call us to unity and we're gonna see how how he addresses different things that are working against the body and working against this united, uh, uh, this unity that the church needs to have. Uh, he's going to address each and every one, sometimes chapter by chapter, sometimes chapters at a time. Uh, so Paul wants us to see how we can and how we should be adding to the body as individuals, we come together as the church. And he wants us to understand uh, that every decision we make and every, uh, you know, as, as we follow a certain agenda in our personal lives, we should always funnel that back into our participation with the body of Christ. And, and two things that we should think about with everything that we do and every decision that we make, how is this building up the body and how is this glorifying the head being Jesus? How is this building up the body? And you may be a part of a, of a very uh, a large church or small church, and, and maybe you're someone or maybe you know someone that doesn't think that being involved in a church is important, that still does not uh, excuse anyone from what the Bible makes it very clear. We're a member of his body, so we should be in community. The best way to be in community is to be involved in a local church, right? But if we're a part of his body and we're in community, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must consider how is my life building up the body of Christ? How am I building up the whole of which I'm a part of? And how are we, I'm included in that, you're included in that, we are included in that, how are we glorifying the head of the body, of course, which is Jesus. And if he has made a way for us to follow, the the best way to glorify him is to be like him. Sounds simple enough. Uh, He closes out chapter one 
like this, if you'll read with me or you'll follow with me, verses 27 through 31, as he sets us up for chapter two, uh, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise or the things the world might would say, that's silly, that's unnecessary, that's not the way it works, that's not how it seems like it should be. He has chosen what we call foolish to put to shame what we call wise. And God has put to shame or he has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And again, that weakness is that, that, that the way of the cross, that lifestyle that often gets you know, scorned at or often gets looked down at, that, that lifestyle of humility, that lifestyle of selflessness, that lifestyle of God over me, that lifestyle of we over my he says, the base things of the world and the things that are despised, God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And again, Paul is dealing with a group of people who are very much influenced by the Gentile and, and the Greek way of thinking, uh, which is, is all about, uh, you know, seeing results and seeing the, the world, you know, the, the empires that were build up and rise up and, and, and become stronger. And, and Paul's telling them uh, as they have come to Christ that it's not gonna work the same way in the kingdom of God. But that's not, that doesn't mean you should give up. That actually means you should lean in as you see God works differently than you may have been used to the world working previously or thought the world worked previously. And, and here's the goal, verse 29, that no flesh should, glorify, should glory in his presence. That this is not about you or I or any of us individually or any nation particularly or any agenda or, or ambition of this world, but it's about God's kingdom, it's about God's church, God's agenda that he would receive the glory. Verse 30, but of him you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So what that tells us is that Jesus has made a way for us to be saved from the world, saved from its way of doing and thinking and being and enter into a better way, a better world, a better lifestyle. But the goal is, as verse 31 puts it, as it is written, he who glories or she who glories, let them glory in the Lord. So again, we are learning to live a life that glorifies God. In 1 Corinthians, is, 1 Corinthians is gonna talk about um, the, the way that we think, uh, the, way, the way that we conduct our lives, the way that we uh, you know, handle our morality. Uh, it's, gonna ha it's gonna address every aspect of humanity uh, from our private life to our family life, to our public and, 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 and civic lives and as we deal with you know, our, our communities and deal with our world. Uh, it's gonna address all the different avenues of, of human life so that we would learn how to glorify God. But Paul doesn't waste time in saying the best way to get equipped for this is to be a part of the church. And of course, he's affirming what the Corinthians already believe because they are already gathered as a body, but he wants to give them that affirmation and give them that confirmation that you're in the right place. I know there's some stuff going on that I'm not proud of and that you're ashamed of, but hey, don't disperse, don't quit, don't give up. You're in the right place. You're following the right path, stay strong, stay faithful. We're gonna work out the kings and work out the bugs and we're gonna get you even closer to where you should be. So 
uh, Paul, uh, he, he has, he's made it clear as, as we get into the door, we're not even through the door, through the threshold of this conversation really. Paul established pretty firm, a, a very clear banner over us that the only person that should become famous in this is Jesus. So he wants to make it very clear. We're a part of the church, but why are we here? We're here for Jesus. Who are we here for? Not any one of us, particularly for our glory or for our fame. We're here for Jesus. The only person that's being celebrated over another is Jesus. Now, that's not to say that, uh, that everybody isn't going to benefit or be blessed by association, but the point he's making is that there's no hierarchy. There's no caste system. There's no class system. So Paul, wanting the church to be all that it can be, wanting the church to be united, comes out of the box saying, hey, there can't be any me over them or us over them, and I'm better because of that, and she's worse because of that. He says, hey, we're unified under Jesus. He's the one we're here to glorify, uh, and and we're not here to build, to, to lift up any one person over another, uh, that we are here for Jesus. We are his body. And we've already learned in, 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 that in Corinth, there were many trying to elevate particular messengers over another. Remember back in chapter one, he mentioned that some were uh, celebrating Peter over Paul or some were celebrating Paul over Apollos and some were saying, I don't wanna listen to any of these people. I've got the words that Jesus spoke by way of Peter or Matthew or, or Luke. Uh, but, but Paul says, hey, uh, uh, we, uh, all the messengers, we're on the same team. Uh, I'm not trying to become uh, you know, greater or louder than Apollos or, or Peter and, and vice versa. Uh, we're here to build up the body. Uh, so let's not be tempted by that. And, and really the reason why they were trying to lift up one of those messengers over another, it was because they were trying to lift themselves up over each other. Uh, because if somebody was aligned with Peter and Peter was considered to be the, the smarter or the more blessed or the more inspired, then all of a sudden Peter's crowd gets a little bit more clout over Paul or over Apollos or any other. But, but, but Paul quickly says there's no room for that toxicity. There's no room for that heresy. Uh, and he sets a precedent coming out of chapter one by testifying the way he does business, the way he conducts his ministry. And he wants this to be an influence on how we participate in the body of Christ. Verse number one of chapter two, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, I didn't come to you to make a name for myself with my own words or my own ideas or ideologies. I came to you with a very specific and narrow agenda to exalt Jesus in his way, to make disciples for Jesus and to edify and unite his body. Now, what we're gonna talk about uh, up front about Paul's approach in his preaching, in his teaching, uh, but even though I'm not talking to a congregation of all preachers and teachers, I still think this is an important conversation for us to hear as the body of Christ. Uh, not simply, even though this can be useful for this, not simply to judge those who are preaching to us, even though this can be a litmus test to hold accountable those that are preaching and teaching to you and for you and, and those that you listen to. But I don't think this is only gonna be so we can judge those that preach and teach or, or, or pastors or in ministry. Uh, but I think this is going to be helpful in influencing how we hear and it's gonna guide how we listen. 
And I'll explain in, as, we, as, we, as we go through. Uh, when we listen to God's word being taught, when we read God's word in general, how we listen and how we hear is an underrated, overlooked factor. You know, Jesus often said, uh, would preface his parables, you that have or he that has ears to hear. Now, everyone was hearing him, but what he was saying was that you've got to make sure you're hearing the right way, that you're listening the right way. So I want to talk about a, a, a little bit, uh, I want to talk about that a little bit before we listen to Paul explain his approach in teaching, because I think our own approach in listening really follows the same line of thought. And of course, I, I'll also address how my approach in reading God's word and prep to speak uh, on behalf is influenced by this text. So just to hold myself accountable in front of everybody. Um, so what exactly is Paul saying here? He's using his own approach in preaching to the church as an example for their own participation in church. Let me say that again. He's using his approach in preaching to influence and as an example for what your approach should be in participating. So I'm preaching, you're participating because you're listening, you're, you're, you're soaking it all in, you're gonna apply it. So the same idea applies to both of us, even though one of us is talking and others of us are listening. Paul's saying the, the, the approach that I take as a preacher should also be your approach as a participant, as a hearer, as a listener, as in the goals that we have, the agendas that we follow. So building off of the statement that our glory is in the Lord, he says, and let's read again, I came to you not with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, what does he mean by testimony of God? Really simple, it's God's word. So when he says, I'm declaring God's testimony, he's saying, I'm declaring God's word as in what was written in the Old Testament and what was being uh, revealed through his New Testament letters and what was written, of course, in the gospels and what was written uh, and had been uh, taken place in the book of Acts. So when Paul says, I'm declaring the testimonies of God, I'm doing so not with the excellency of speech or wisdom or my own wisdom. And let me explain what he means there. He says, I did not come with excellency of or lofty speech or my own wisdom. That, that word excellence, that, that phrase excellency of speech uh, speaks of someone who talks in a way that their word is greater than anybody else's, uh, that their ideas is greater than anybody else's. Now, this is often associated with orators. Now, of course, if you're listening to anybody give a speech in the political world, economic world, social world, you hope that someone who is given a speech and wanting your vote, uh, you know, believes their speech is greater than everybody else's because why else would they, why else would you vote for them? But Paul's not looking for election. He's not running for an election here, right? He He's not trying to get people's praise. He's doing a service on behalf of Jesus. He says, I did not come as if to project my words as greater than anybody else's. I did not come as if to say what I say is preeminent over what you say, and more importantly, over what God has said. He says, I did not come with God's word by way of my own opinions and my own ideas and my own filter. I didn't come to you with my own spin on what God already said. He wants to make that very clear. Now, it's easy to read this and not read the rest of the passage and say, oh, Paul is just saying that he didn't come to them as a good speaker or he wasn't prepared uh, when he pr preached. This, let me make it very clear. 
Paul is not saying that he came to them bumbling along, stumbling along uh, with, without an impactful or prepared message. That's not what he's saying. Even though many people, I don't doubt any of you would say this, but many people might would use this text to say, well, that's why you shouldn't be educated or that's why you shouldn't have notes or that's why we, you shouldn't study or that's why you shouldn't be prepared. Uh, now, I know that as someone who is educated and prepares and studies, I'm self-aware that, of course, I would say that because, you know, of course. But I want you to know that this is what I believe, uh, and I'll show you, that Paul is talking about what he is not talking about um, is this idea that, well, that you shouldn't be prepared or you should not study or you should not be disciplined in your, uh, in, in your you know, uh, service to God. Uh, when you read God's word, you gotta make sure you have the whole story and the whole counsel of God's word. And, and Paul is making very clear uh, that he did not come with his own agenda, with his own ideals. But to say that he wasn't prepared or wasn't well-educated or well-studied, that's not knowing the whole story of Paul. Uh, Paul, when he got saved, we know he spent three years in the wilderness and in solitude with his Old Testament, bringing all of his scholarly and well-educated Jewish knowledge under the message and revelation of Jesus. So clearly, Paul was well-prepared for ministry. He spent nearly a decade getting ready for the mission field before he ever went on the mission field. So we also know Paul was very well spoken. Not that you have to be, but Paul was. When we read about Luke's, uh, in Luke's narratives about Paul, when he preached in front of crowds, in front of councils and politicians, Paul was a very uh, you know, compelling and persuasive communicator. So I wanted to say this clearly because some of you do teach Bible studies and some of you will teach Bible studies and some of you may preach in front of congregations and some of you lead in our small groups week after week. So my appeal to you as someone who may very well be a, a teacher or a preacher of God's word, this is not an appeal to not study or not seek to be prepared and know as much as you can. Can the Holy Spirit use us in an unprepared moment? Of course, he can do beyond what we are very prepared to do. But the Bible makes it very clear. We should be prepared. We should be uh, you know, uh, trained, educated, and ready for opportunities God gives us. Paul himself wrote to his protege, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Paul says, Timothy, you need to be prepared. You need to be well-disciplined. You need to study and you need to be able to handle God's word in a moment so that you would avoid irrelevant babbling. He says that when you get the chance to talk in front of God's people and do for, you know, speak for God, you better be ready to do it. Uh, don't just babble along because all that does is lead to you know, more ungodliness. He said later on in that letter, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So not only Sundays at 11, but whenever else you might have to re be, be a messenger for God. So I wanted to address that because you'll have people that will quote chapter two, verse one and say, well, that's why you shouldn't be prepared. Or that's why you shouldn't. And, and again, as somebody, all of you that may very well be in a position to hold God's word and teach and, and preach and, and, and communicate God's word, be prepared, be disciplined, be well studied because you never know when you might be, able, be ready to be called upon to. And if you are called upon to and you do know when that day uh, is coming, be, be a good student and, and be ready to do so. The point, so back to our point, 
The point, Paul is saying that he did not come as if he had some exclusive revelation to give them. No, he simply came to be a messenger for Jesus. Just as when we come to the body of Christ, we don't come into a place where it's about competition or self-righteousness. We come to be disciples of Jesus. We come to be members of his body. We come to be reflectors of his glory. So I want you to see what Paul is saying here. He says, here's how I seek the right disposition, which we all should have. I do not come with my own ideas, with my own wisdom, filtering God's word through my own thoughts and my own moods. And this happens in more churches than you might would want to believe it happens. Paul says, I don't come with my agenda filtering God's word or, or, or my agenda by way of God's word. He says, this is what I do. And verse two is so, so important. For I determined... I made the pre-decision a long time ago when I was called into ministry. I determined to know nothing or know, not to know anything among you or as I preached to you and as I taught to you and as I pastored you. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now here's what he's saying. When I present God's word, when I read it, when I hear it, when I listen to it, and even more importantly, when I preach it, I present every word of God through Jesus and his cross. You don't get my opinion. You don't get what Paul thinks or what Paul believes. You don't get Paul's political ideologies. You don't get Paul's economic ideologies. You don't get Paul's social ideologies. You get Paul as a, submit, as a submitting servant, as a submitting messenger to Jesus and his cross. When I preach God's word, it is by way of and through the filter of, through the lens of Jesus and his cross. And you all know this when I preach God's word Paul says you've heard me bring it all through Jesus and it's all through his cross and that should be the way we listen the way we hear the way we judge what we hear based on what Paul told us in chapter one if we rightly handle God's word every page every word is always pointing to and revealing more about Jesus and more about his cross Jesus is not just a character in part of the Bible. He is the theme of the entire revelation of God. Now, there are a few more important to go to verses that help us understand why Paul taught the word this way. And I think you should know them as someone who listens to God's word and reads God's word and as someone who may very well teach God's word. Jesus gave us this confirmation that this is how God's word should be interpreted. John 5, 39, he spoke to the Jewish leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think you figured them out, but you did not know, or you've been ignoring that. They actually bear witness about me. So here's Jesus saying that, and he's referring to the Old Testament at this point. And of course, the New Testament is all about him because it's all after he came. But Jesus says, every word Every page, every chapter, every passage, every book of God's word is about him. It's a pretty big statement. Of course, he's the one saying it. Then after the resurrection, when Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, this is what the scripture tells us. 
Beginning with Moses, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, that's everything else. He interpreted them in all the scriptures, things concerning himself. So we have it from Jesus and John. We have it from Jesus by way of Luke. That every word, every page, every passage, every book points to, is a, has the purpose of revealing Jesus. Now, there's an episode in the Gospels that makes this even more clear. Um, the Transfiguration story, you've heard of it before, uh, where Jesus is uh, brought up on a mountain and a few of the disciples are there and they get to see Jesus in this glory that is otherworldly. And this is the moment when three of them at least realize, oh, he's not just a prophet, uh, he, he might just be the Messiah. He might just be God in flesh. And if, it, up until this point, they really weren't sure. Here's what Peter tells us by way of Mark. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So that's Mark's way of telling us this was really bright. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, this is a big moment because Moses represented the law. Of course, he wrote it, but Moses represented the law of God. The first five books of the Bible, the foundation of Israel after, as, uh, you know, under the, the infrastructure Moses designed or gave them. Moses represented the law, but Elijah represented the prophets. Elijah was the first of the prophets. Elisha came after him. Isaiah came after him. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets came after Elijah. Elijah had a school where he raised up the prophets. So when they see Moses and Elijah, here's what they're seeing. That's the law. That's the prophets. And here's Jesus. So initially, Peter and James and John are thinking, okay, we've got the law, the prophets, and we've got Jesus. This must be the third pillar. The, we've got the Old Testament split in two. Now we got something, you know, to go alongside of those guys. And this is what Peter says after he sees these three. He says, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because we got one for the prophet, one for the lawgiver, and one for you, the, the, the one that's going to usher in the kingdom of God. So uh, the, the way they interpreted Jesus initially is he's just a third pillar in the Jewish, in the, you know, Judaism as they knew it. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. The law, the prophets, and whatever Jesus is doing. But then, this is so big and it doesn't get preached enough. Then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice, that's God's voice, came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Hey, this isn't just a messenger. This isn't just a prophet. This isn't just a teacher. This is my son incarnate. Listen to him. As in what he says is greater than what they said. What he has to say takes precedent over what they had to say. And what he says was the goal of what they said. And what they wrote all points to him. You follow me there? Jesus said it in John. Luke tells us that Jesus said it to the disciples. And this is God the Father saying, listen to him. It all was written so that you would see him and hear him. 
So what is the goal? What is the theme? What is the, what is the, what is the purpose of it all? To reveal Jesus, to reflect Jesus in the work he came to do on the cross. Now, Peter in 2 Peter writes about the transfiguration and this is what he says about God's word in light of what he learned that day. For no prophecy or no scripture, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but when men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is Peter's way and you can read the whole passage to get the whole story. Peter says, since we saw the transfiguration, we knew that everything that was written in the old days was written to point to the coming day. So when Paul says, I came determined to not to know anything but Christ in him crucified, he's saying, I came to you with God's word and I didn't come with what I had to say and I didn't come saying, this is what the Judaism says. I came to you saying, this is what the word of God says in light of who Jesus is and in light of what he has done on the cross. So when you read Genesis... When you read Leviticus, when you read Judges, when you read Job, when you read Psalms, Isaiah, Malachi, it's not that we have to go looking for it, but breathing off of every page is a message that ultimately points to Jesus and reflects his saving work. The seed promised in Genesis 3, that's Jesus the blessing promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, that's Jesus. Melchizedek, the priest and king, points to Jesus, the great high priest and the only king. The lamb that God promised to Isaac on the mountain, that's Jesus. The scarlet thread tied around Judah's son when he was born by way of his daughter-in-law, that very messy story, that very complicated relationship, the scarlet thread they tied around the child's foot that points to the blood of Jesus. Joseph saving his brothers, the world from famine is a picture of Jesus saving us all from sin. Moses confronting Pharaoh, revealing the power of God and leading the nation out of bondage. That's a picture of Jesus defeating the enemy, manifesting God's power and delivering us from sin and death. The law and the sacrificial system, which Israel failed again and again, points to Jesus who keeps the law and is the only one true lamb of God. Are you getting it yet? But there's so much more. God promised uh, to give Israel a land of milk and honey, riches and treasures and possessions. That's a picture of stepping in to the spirit-filled life. God gave Israel tribal leaders, Joshua and the judges, a picture of Jesus, our great avenger and our savior. David, when he faced Goliath, is a picture of Jesus, not us, because Jesus faced the greatest giant and he slew him once and for all. Solomon, the wisest, richest, most powerful king, points to Jesus, the only wise and universal God king. But, but don't you see the point is to confirm and anchor our confidence in what the New Testament reveals about Jesus? Jesus is the better Melchizedek. He's the better Isaac. He's the better Joseph. He's the better Moses. He's the better Passover lamb. He's the better Joshua. He's the better Gideon. He's the better Samson. He's the better David. He's the better Solomon. He's all over the Bible. Even on the pages that you don't see his name and you don't find his cross. 
Yet on every page and in every story, you see a picture and a preview and a promise of Jesus and the salvation he came to give you and the new life it produces in you. Even if there's not a person representing Jesus, the circumstances that we read about when things fall a certain way, either teach us the Christian way or show us what isn't the Christian way. When Abel brought a lamb before God, not the work of his hands, shows us the way to be saved. When Lot mingled in the world and suffered the consequences, shows us the way that Christians should not go about their lives. When Esau let his appetite get the best of him and cost him his birthright, shows us how we should control our appetites by the way of Jesus. When Jacob learned to die to himself in order to get to God, it shows us the way of the cross. When Moses instructed the nation of Israel how they should treat one another from their neighbor, their stranger, it teaches us how we should love one another. You know, in the life of David, there's so many examples. His selfishness at Nob that cost that whole village. It, 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 there's so many lives were taken that day because he was selfish. We see about how selfless he was at Hebron when he said before he took the crown, he made a covenant with the people for their good. We see how his lust for Uriah's wife cost him so much. But when he surrendered his throne to his own son, it gained him something more. The prophets all point to a day when the things previewed in the Old Testament become internalized, not just about a nation, but about the world, where it's not just about religion anymore, but it's about a relationship with God through Jesus. Underneath every text is Jesus. Underneath every story is his cross. What it says about sin, what it says about self, what it says about the godly and only way, we will be able to take hold of what God is saying clearly and powerfully if we determine to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Unfortunately, this isn't always how God's word is preached. And it's not always how God's word is heard and read in our own eyes. In college, and, and again in seminary, I had some professors that would hammer this again and again and again, and I'm so thankful they did. Any good and solid commentary that you read and resource you follow will do the same. I wanna show you two fancy words uh, that I learned that ironically sound a lot like Jesus, though they have nothing to do with Jesus in terms of the words that they are. But I wanna show you these words, and, and you may never remember these words again, but I think they will help show the two ways of interpreting the Bible and how we should and how we shouldn't. The two words are eisegesis and exegesis. Now, uh, again, these are just words that you'll never read again, never talk about again, but the word Jesus there, G-E-S-I-S, -S, is the word interpretation. It's a Greek word. Uh, Jesus is, it means interpretation or meaning. Ice means into, ex means out of. So on that note, eisegesis means to take meaning into a text. Exegesis means to take meaning out of the text. Now, if you're following, you would guess the correct message, the correct method would be exegesis. Because Jesus and his cross are the foundation that steers and influences our reading and hearing. If we know the basis for every word, if we know what God's word is saying, we go into God's word and we let it preach to us. We don't take anything with us we let it preach to us as it is. We let the Holy Spirit take the word and bring out the meaning 
rather than go into the text with what we want to hear or what we think we should hear. But so often, the approach that we take and the approach that is taken is this eisegetical method. We take our own predetermined ideas in and we interpret the text through what we already believe or we read a text as to confirm what we already believe. Now, this is why Paul's making a big deal here that we beware of the temptation and the drift in every one of us. Paul says, I did not come having read my own ideas into a text and presenting you my beliefs. I came having received from God what he said concerning Jesus and the Christian way. Now, reading into the text, putting things into the text is why so many of us swear that our social, cultural, political, economical ideas are confirmed by any given text. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have things to say about those matters, but we must be open to what God says and not go into a text to make it say what we want it to say. You follow me? This is why when it comes to politics, you'll have a very hard time finding a platform that is fully, partially, yeah, but fully endorsed by the Bible. That's a hard thing to do. Good thing, though, God's word can challenge us and convict us and give us the correct worldview. This is why when it comes to culture, when it comes to what culture is saying about sexuality or morality, they have to twist the Bible in a certain direction because what is written will not confirm what they want it to say. So they twist it and they make it say a different thing. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you go with certain bent and you piece it together a certain way. That's why there are so many denominations. Think about this. Every denomination claims the Bible as its foundation. And I'm not saying that multiple denominations can't have it right or can't have the, 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 the similar ideas, but every denomination claims that God's word is the foundation, yet we all read it a different way, <laughs> right? Somebody's gotta be wrong. Every political party at some point is gonna say the Bible is why they believe what they believe. Somebody's gonna say, well, the Bible says that. And somebody else reads it and says, well, oh, I didn't know that. And then somebody else says, I didn't say that. We try to justify what we think. And sometimes we know they're not, we know good and well that the things that we believe aren't Christian, yet we've got a few verses that we can twist together, don't we? Can we make the decision tonight to do what Paul says in verse two? I determined to see nothing but Jesus in his cross and hear how God wants to make me more like him through this book. Can we make that decision tonight? And maybe you already have, but can we do it again? For his glory alone, for his body's good, for our, for our growth in him. You know how many churches divide over what glorifies God, what is good for the body and what is good for us because we all read the Bible a little differently. And sometimes we will not, we will not back down because we read into it what we want it to say. There are plenty of passages that we're gonna read that's gonna require we crucify our flesh in order to receive his spirit. Can we make the decision ahead of time that that's a good thing? That's an invitation to the way of God. Listen to how Paul clarifies his approach in verse three. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. When I handle God's word, I don't do so with arrogance or with a here's what I, you know, thus saith the Lord as in I am the Lord. When I handle God's word, I do so confessing my weakness, trembling and in reverence of God's superiority. 
So that, what does verse four and five say? That my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. So he says, hey, I might be persuasive, but not because I added something to it, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, that you don't walk out thinking, well, man, he's smart, but that it was through the power of God we received revelation from God. But the importance here is how we obtain God's power. We aren't going to receive power from God unless we have the proper posture. And the posture is what verse two makes very clear. We must determine to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. How you handle God's word, how you listen to God's word, how you read it for yourselves determines if you will receive the power from him. Listen, there are plenty of preachers who do not preach Jesus in his cross. We are very guilty on a large scale. There are plenty of church members looking to refute what's being taught from God's word by the one rightly handling it. Always disputing, always being contrary. There's plenty of people like that. They never can receive from God because they always wanna argue with the way they see it. There are plenty of us as we read, we won't lay our glasses down and we won't read it through the spirit of God because we're too stubborn to take our own filter off. One thing's for sure though, God's power is only found in the person of Jesus by the way of his cross. So if we're gonna get the power of God, that's gonna change our lives. We have got to hear from God and read his word through the person of Jesus and through the message of his cross, what it means about sin, what it means about self and what it says about salvation, which is contrary to the way the world takes, the approach the world takes and understands power. Let me say this about my approach as we close. Uh, my style, and you probably know this by now if you paid attention to me for a few years, but I wanna be transparent because I don't want y'all thinking, well, does he apply his own teaching? Uh, my style is, has all has been recently or has for a while has been to read the text, see what God is doing in the text and what other texts may con connect to it. But I often, and you'll notice this, I often present the idea in the text before we look at the text. The reason for which is because for many, maybe not you who love the Bible, but for many who are not familiar with the Bible, that may be a backdoor entrance for them into God's word. The idea sometimes is that we resist God's word, uh, what it says or what it confronts and challenges us. But if an area of concern is presented and we realize it's an area that needs to be addressed, oh, by the way, God's word says this about that very area. And here's what we should do in response to it. Now, again, the inspiration for that entire conversation was God's word. Sometimes I split the order up. But again, that's just my style. Not everybody does that. But the point of it is, is what the goal and what the inspiration behind it all. For me, I like to think, I like to read the text and say, what is God saying to us about us, a strength, a weakness, an opportunity, a need, and then present what God says. Did you know God actually says something about that? And then in response, this is what we should do. And again, that's just me but I wanna show you that, that there's a, there's a, everyone has a unique style. Everyone has a way of presenting the Bible. And sometimes I don't even do that at all, but that's a way I do a lot of times. The inspiration agenda is always these two questions. 
What is God's word saying to, saying to us about Jesus? And how does his cross help us become more like him? Every passage should be read through that filter. What does this say about Jesus as, in our, as the savior who died to give us freedom from sin and deliver us into the kingdom? And how does his cross help us get there? While we don't come with our own wisdom or man's wisdom, there is so much wisdom that God wants to give us from his word. Powerful, practical wisdom that can transform us. Hear with me in closing for what Paul says in verse six. However, we speak or we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, those who are spiritual. Yet not the wisdom of this age or this world, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And this is how Paul describes this wisdom that God can give you from his word. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for, for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You know what this tells me and what it tells you? We have access to the very revelation of God, what he wills and what he wants us to possess in our hearts. Remember the scripture from Ezekiel that God will put his spirit in us, that he will cause us to walk in this way. He will give us the desire to do what is right. In connection with his word, as Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. And as God breathes on us from the pages of scripture, we have access to spiritual wisdom. But that only comes when we lay ourselves down and we look for Jesus and we look for his cross. Hear with me in closing, verse 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man has not received the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can, they, can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Do you see what he's saying to us? We have the mind of Christ and the capacity to know him and be more like him. We have access to us everything that we need to see Jesus, to know Jesus, and to be like Jesus. The only requirement is we must determine not to know anything except Christ and him crucified. You know what that means? We have got to lay down any predisposition any natural affiliation, any natural predisposition, we've got to lay them down so that God's power can fill us up. The crucified Jesus should inform and direct all other knowledge, ideologies, ambitions, and agenda. His word gives us everything we could ever need 
May we determine in our hearts to make the most of every passage we read and every message we hear. It's all about Jesus and it's all about his cross. And you can become more like him. You can know him fully and deeply if you allow his will to take precedent over yours. Easier said than done, but you have the mind of Christ. You have the spirit of God inside of you if you're a Christian. This is what God wants to breathe into your heart and breathe into your life and make your life brand new because of. Let's take off our glasses, take off our filter and let's put on and read the word of God through the lens and person of Jesus and his cross. You'll be glad you did. It'll change your life. It'll change all of our lives. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word. And thank you, you've always stayed faithful to this promise. When we open your word and we read it and study it and hear it, you breathe on us from page to person. Jesus can be known. His spirit can be received. His wisdom can be internalized if we determine to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. If we determine to know nothing but Jesus as our King and as our Lord and his cross as our way, as our lifestyle, saying no to self, saying yes to God for his glory, for his body's growth and good and for our own well-being. God, thank you for this guide. Thank you for this plan to keep us on that straight and narrow. We ask all this in Jesus' name.